And welcome back, everybody, to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda, sitting in for El Cresta. And uh, the Eucharist, you know, this is the source of our faith because it's Christ himself under the appearances of bread and wine. And today there is a study showing that Catholics are losing their faith in the real presence of the Eucharist. And so it's very important for us to know the the history, if not the secret history, of transubstantiation and help us do that. We have our good friend William Albrecht with us, who is a convert to the faith. He's an international speaker and debater. He's participated in over 50 live and moderated debates, runs a fantastic website, which is patristicpillars.com, and he has a fantastic book out with uh, Father Christian Kappas called The Secret History of Transubstantiation, Pulling Back the Veil on the Eucharist. And William Albrecht, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Gary, I am thrilled to be here with you, thrilled to be able to talk about such a vitally important topic as you as you briefly uh, spoke about the fact that today this really is a very, very important issue. People are going through a bit of a crisis, uh, if you will, but a very, the, core, the heart and core of our faith really is the belief in the Holy Eucharist, Gary, and what a perfect time of the year to be talking about something so essential to our faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you and Father Kappas did a remarkable job in this book. Um, tell us a little bit about how you uh, you and Father Christian Kappas kind of got together on this project. Yeah, that is a really good question. So we realized that there was a great need for not only revisiting the past debates when it came to the Eucharist, Gary, but really looking at the kind of language used by the early Church. And when I say early Church, Gary, I mean the very first Christians in the New Testament. How did they recognize the Eucharist in their writings? And then, after that, their followers, their disciples. And we recognized, we came to the realization, as the Church has always said, the teaching of transubstantiation— was there from the very beginning. And what we mean by that, Gary, is you know very well, we t- when we say transubstantiation, people need not get confused. It simply means the transition of the entire substance of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, so it becomes the true body and blood of Christ. That is what we mean when we talk about real presence, the Holy Eucharist. And we truly recognize, Gary, when we looked at the writings of the New Testament, St. Paul the evangelists, when they would hearken to the writings of the Old Testament, they were clearly talking about that incredible change that occurs at the Lord's Supper. We wanted to get back to that language of the old, the ancient church, but when we say old, we mean the very first followers of Christ. But despite being ancient, this kind of language is very relevant for us, even today, Gary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you've been discussing your faith with uh, Protestant fundamentalists and things like that, you know, there's these old canards that transubstantiation was invented. It was, what, the Fifth Lateran Council in the Middle Ages sometime. But, man, you really do pull back the veil that this is a very ancient belief, even though perhaps the terminology wasn't used immediately. Very fantastic point there, Gary. You're definitely right. Whereas the term transubstantiation, we in fact show that it even predates the medieval era. But the incredible thing there, Gary, is despite other other fathers using different terms, we show that you can trace this back way earlier. We find very, very uh, exact terminology, just in a different language, utilized by such incredible fathers of the Church as St. Ambrose of Milan, 
St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and of course the book we cover, even apostolic fathers like the great St. Ignatius of Antioch. And why do I bring up these incredible names, Gary? Well, they all use language that emphasizes the real presence. And when I say real, I mean the actual presence of our Lord and Savior there at the Lord's Supper. They're very careful to utilize this language, Gary. And the most amazing thing, they didn't need to have that particular word, even though a lot of them used very similar terminology, when they would hearken to passages in the Bible that talk about change occurring, such as Ambrose of Milan, St. Ambrose, um, hearkening to passages in the Old Testament where the Greek term metousios is used. And he would say, hey, this is exactly what is happening in the Lord's Supper. Gary, that kind of language really should make any Catholic thrilled at attending the Holy Mass, because this is the faith of our ancient fathers. Yes, yeah, and that's one of the aspects about your book that really fascinated me, William, was uh, where you have these early church fathers who are trying to put into words, you know, the faith of the church in the real presence. And they go back to Old Testament passages that you would never really connect with you know, this this substantial change. Maybe you could give us a couple examples of it. Fantastic point, Gary. You're definitely right. One particular passage that the great St. Ambrose loved pointing towards, and indeed he wasn't the only one, was the incredible uh, incident of the staff turning into a snake in the Old Testament. But people may wonder, well, how on, what on earth does that have to do with the Holy Eucharist? Well, we're going to tell them, Gary, it has a lot to do with the Holy Eucharist, because the early fathers recognized, they said, look, if God could do that, you cannot put any limitation on God. That's exactly what's happening when it comes to the Eucharist. But what do they mean by that, that that is what's happening? Well, they mean that nature is being transformed. Indeed, Ambrose says the efficacy of holy prayer transforms into the flesh and the blood the sacramental elements and what they would do to emphasize the reality of this language, they would point to such magnificent passages as that one, Gary. And guess what? There is language of change, of substance, of nature in that Old Testament passage, and it became one of the real landmark passages that the fathers, the ancient fathers, would hearken to to show, look, this is similar to what is happening. It is exact in the sense of nature being changed in the Lord's Supper. Yeah, it's pretty hard to read a symbolic view of that miracle, isn't it? (laughs) It really is difficult. It's pretty much impossible, Gary. And the most amazing thing is, is you brought up a great point, how the early Church Fathers read the Bible, the very first followers of our Lord and Savior. Indeed, even when you get to the time of the Reformers, John Calvin recognized that the early Church used those passages of the Old Testament to show the reality of the Holy Eucharist. And let's be honest, he didn't hold to the Eucharist the way uh, Catholics hold to it. He was a bit perplexed at it, but he serves as an ancient witness nonetheless, because he points to the fact that the early Church Fathers read these passages in this way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, another thing, too, I, I really enjoyed your section on the manna. You know, in our in our popular mind, we're like, oh yeah, the manna is bread from heaven. Jesus came down from heaven. We can see the connection, 
But if you really dig into the biblical uh, uh, information there, you find out the manna had all sorts of very strange uh, properties, didn't it? It sure did, Gary. And, and so much of it just really points towards the incredible, as we like to, to point to, the language of the incredible St. Augustine. He calls these mysteries, they foreshadow the beauty that is to come. And indeed, the manna does point to so much. Indeed, how do we know this? Well, we open the Gospel of St. John, and St. John himself tells us he he has a whole discourse on the manna from heaven. He talks about the manna. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, but they're no longer here. And then he points to this. He's pointing to the words of Christ. He's preserved the words of our Lord and Savior, where verse 15, chapter 6 says, But this is the bread that comes down from heaven. If any man eat of it, he shall not die. And this is the incredible point. This is what shows us the importance of this manna, Gary. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Quite different from that manna, but that manna in the Old Testament was pointing towards something. And guess what? We arrive at that incredible reality in the New Testament. Indeed, the manna is our Lord and Savior, the Son of Man come down from heaven. Isn't the language just magnificent, Gary? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and manna has all these strange properties, like it melts in the sunlight, but you can bake it, you know, or yeah. it has like yeah. every flavor that you can imagine, you know, it's just, there's so yeah. much there. Yeah, so... Yeah, there really is just so much. So, uh, yeah, and that's something I really enjoy about your book is that you dive into the biblical text, the historic text, uh, you know, New Testament, patristic evidence. You also break some new ground, don't you? Yes, definitely. The incredible thing that I, I, we were just so thrilled when we were working on the book, Gary, is you recognize this language of transubstantiation. You can find it in earlier figures than the medieval era. So if you look at you look to the famous figures and the, these uh, these names are probably not going to be household names, Gary. Leontius of, uh, of Bethanium, Leontius of Jerusalem. They're not names that people think of at the at the top of your head. But what we provide in the book that you won't find anywhere else is fresh translations of that. I've got to give a tip of the hat to the Greek scholar Father Coppins. He's just so incredible when it comes to his translations. We have fresh translations in the book, and guess what? People are going to love this. It is, it's been a hot topic for a long time. People have wondered, well, did Pope Gelasius ever deny transubstantiation? This was a, uh, a polemical argument that Protestantism liked to use, you know, around the 19th century. Well, guess what? We provide a fresh translation of the words of Pope Gelasius, and I'll give the audience a bit of a spoiler. Pope Gelasius okay. did not deny transubstantiation. <laughs> he definitely did not deny it. But we have a fresh translation in there of his works, and we also examine in depth the words of Nestorius. As you know very well, Gary, the very first person within the Church, at the time he was part of the Church, within the Church who denied transubstantiation. But as we know very well, Gary, he had a lot of problems with his theology. He had a deficient Mariology. He had a deficient Christology. And when you have those kinds of problems with your theology, it's very likely that you're not going to understand Eucharistic theology. Isn't that right, Gary? Yeah, that's uh, absolutely right. Yeah, they're all connected uh, because, uh, you know, you, you misunderstand who and what Jesus is. You're definitely going to misunderstand the Eucharist. 
Yes, no doubt. And people will be thrilled to also hear that probably about a little bit over a decade ago, there were there was a chest of or, or a collection of writings of origin that were found, and we provide fresh translations of several of those texts in the book. So you're going to find a lot of material freshly translated in the book. And really, the one thing that I really am thrilled about when it comes to this book, Gary, is we had two co-contributors that helped out with chapters in the book, a representative of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Syriac Orthodox Church. These are two ancient apostolic faiths. We're just thrilled they were able to help us with contributions. Excellent. Well, William, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. had a great time, Gary. All right. The Secret History of Transubstantiation, Pulling Back the Veil on the Eucharist. More to come. You listen to Crest in the Afternoon. We'll be right back.